And good afternoon, everybody. It's Thursday, and there's some commotion going on in the background in Louisiana. It seems good afternoon. <laughs> it's wonderful. <laughs> September 9th. Uh, thank you for joining us, everyone. This is going to be really fun. Uh, I tried to make it a tiki shirt Thursday. And no one got the memo. I think maybe because I didn't send it, but that's okay. A um, few things to run through before we, uh, we introduce this week's uh, awesome guest. Um, there is no Daring Live next week. And the reason there is no Daring Live next week is because young David here and myself, uh, along with um, the much better looking and probably younger Jamie Deering will be headed out to North Carolina to attend Merlefest, uh, which is normally in April. It got moved out to, to September. We're very excited. It is the first and last festival I think we're doing, um, although at the same time, the same weekend, uh, is Winfield, um, which Janet Deering and uh, the amazing David Vega, those of you who know David, um, will be attending that. So if you're in any way close to either of those festivals and you can get down and join us and please come and say hi if you're attending drop by the booth uh for either uh winfield or morpheus we'd love to say hi and see you guys uh in person for the first time in a while that would be awesome um what else has been going on? we celebrated our anniversaries last week not mine and dave's but the some work anniversaries it was fun dave wasn't there but young dave here is celebrating 15 years at Deering. And formally presenting you uh, with that honor at Melfest uh, next week, which is fun. I celebrated 10, which is awesome. Uh, and thanks. But even more so, we should give a shout out to the uh, incredible uh, Chad Kapotic. Many of you will know Chad uh, as our tech guru. Uh, he does a lot of the uh, tech videos, restringing, adjusting trust rods, and, and he's, he's fantastic uh, part of the team. Um, and he celebrated 25 years uh this this year so that's an astonishing feat so really cool things going on i thought i'd just share that as well uh also want to give a quick shout out to my mom who is her birthday today uh all the way in england love you mom happy birthday there we go mom m-u-m ladies and gentlemen all right let's uh let's talk about our guests let's uh, let's get on with some things unless dave do you have anything to talk about or are you uh no let's go you're safe and sound in new orleans which is awesome yeah Power. Power is back on. Hurricanes passed, and everything's good. So, all right, Clinton Davis. Now, this was supposed to be. I should say this was supposed to be an in-person live event, and we uh, couldn't make it happen. Um, we tried, didn't work out, and so we are. We're keeping this as a traditional uh, during live episode. He is in San Diego. He's probably about ten minutes away. But alas, he is still in his uh, in his property. Uh, but he is a fifth generation Kentuckian, uh, now based in San Diego, a master old time banjo player and a very long time friend of the Deering Banjo Company. His work has been described by many as carrying the torch of traditional American folk music. He's an accomplished fiddle, guitar, mandolin, and piano player, um, and he recently released his new album, "If I Live and I Don't Get Killed," on Tiki Parlor Recordings. Um, let's bring in Clint. He's going to talk to us about his new album and uh, chat a little bit about his journey so far. Clint, how are you doing? Bring him on in. Doing very well. Thank you for having um, me. You're very welcome. Thanks for coming in virtually. Yeah, yeah. It's a shame we couldn't be the, here in purpose or be there in person, but uh, very happy to be here doing this. Absolutely. We're, we're honored to have you. And uh, you just got off of uh, playing Summergrass recently, which is our kind of local. San Diego-based bluegrass festival. Um, how yeah, was that? Yeah. That was a real trip for me. I've I've heard about blue uh, summergrass for many many years living in San Diego. I've been 
I've I've uh, played old time music in San Diego now for probably eight or nine, maybe ten years now. But uh, maybe in earlier times, I wasn't playing the most bluegrassy stuff. So um, this uh, the longer I've been playing music here in San Diego, the more I've gotten more into old time fiddle and banjo. And uh, this year they. Actually, last year is when they gave us uh, the invite. Me and my string band, I uh, sometimes play with the trio. And they gave us the invite to play uh, last year, and of course, uh, that got canceled. And so then they, uh, they uh, at the last minute, they said, well, hey, we're going to do it this year again, so why don't you come in and play? So that was a real treat. It was the first like uh, big gig like that I've done in a really long time. It was kind of nerve-wracking. Yeah. I'm not... Uh, I'm not a dyed-in-the-wool-like bluegrass guy, you know, the way that a lot of people at these festivals are. So it's a little little trepidatious going in, like, uh, but it uh, we were seemed like we were really well-received. We had a really great time there, and uh, as you can imagine, the musicianship on display was pretty stellar. I was kind of happy just yeah. to be in the green room most of the day listening to these like mind boggling musicians warming up. <laughs> it's incredible, isn't it? It's incredible. Well, why don't we give the audience a little sense of kind of who you are and it's got a, get a song welcoming, welcoming you in, um, get, sure. get, get people an idea of what kind of style you play and, uh, and we can carry on with some, some questions. Definitely got yeah. a few to ask. So sure. Sure. Well, I play in a lot of different styles and I'll try to represent like the breadth of, what I do over the course of the program, but uh, I'll start off with a uh, really common banjo uh, or fiddle tune. It goes by many names. Uh, some people call it the Wild Horse. Some people call it Stony Point. Some people call it Wild Horses at Stony Point. And then there's plenty of other names they can go by too, but uh, this is one I put on my new record. Thank you. 
Nice. That was awesome. Yeah, love that. That's. I was listening to the album over the last week, and uh, I think that's probably one of my standout tracks for sure. I love the clarity on it. It's just it's awesome. Well, thank you. Yeah, that's a that's a super common melody in the old time world, at least. You know, it's a both like in terms of like the the modern jam scene, and then when you delve into the history of you know what tunes existed you know, in what parts of the country at different times. It's just a, a melody that seems to have just been everywhere all the time. Everyone played it. And so uh, personally, like, when I encounter a tune like that, I guess I usually feel more inspired to try to find a more unique angle on it or just find some way of playing it that I haven't heard someone else play it just yet. You know, whereas maybe if I'm working on something that's really obscure and maybe not a lot of people play or or other people just haven't heard of, I might try to uh, stick closer to a kind of uh, older source. But uh, in any event, when I was working on this, I was... Um, one of my big uh, musical and, and banjo inspirations is a player named Dan Gellert, who um, just has the this way of making anything he plays sound super funky. You know, just with his rhythm, he has, like, the best and hardest swing in his playing. And, uh, you know, just ways of just adding, like, bluesy, funky stuff into melodies in ways that maybe you wouldn't expect, but when you do it, it totally makes sense. So when I was playing with this one, some of those rhythms started to come out when I was playing, and I thought, this is, I think I have something here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to refine this. And that's how that one came about. <laughs> It's definitely got some swing to it, right? It's yeah, definitely got some yeah. little bounce to it. It's cool. It's very cool. So, I mean, let's, let's delve in. I, I want to hear about like, your beginnings a little bit. Um, you're a yeah. fifth-generation Kentuckian. Mm-hmm. Uh, when did you come to San Diego and, and kind of what brought you here in the first place? It's, it's quite, a, quite a different scene. Yeah, I came here in 2009. Um, I grew up in a small town in northern Kentucky where I did uh, do have a pretty deep uh, roots um, as best as I can tell on either side of my family it's like you know people came here from the British Isles you know English Scottish Irish and then they pretty much like wound up where I grew up um, and I but I actually grew up just not playing any kind of old time or folk music at all uh, okay. and never even heard anyone talk about banjo or fiddle music as something that even once upon a time existed there and so I grew up uh, taking I took piano lessons when I was a kid and really took to it and uh, you know went to college in Kentucky the University of Kentucky to study classical piano so once upon a time I was a you know classical pianist and I was playing you know Beethoven sonatas and Bach fugues and you know accompanying opera singers and (laughs) doing stuff like that and um, but you know I also played guitar growing up and um, if I had any exposure to folk music it was or traditional styles of music it was through the guitar you know I grew up hearing a, a lot of blues music there was a blues festival in my hometown every summer and uh, you know just if you play acoustic guitar in Kentucky, you probably know a ton of people that are really into Merle Travis and Chet Atkins and just like worship at the feet of those guys. And I definitely grew up hearing 
a lot of, you know, debates amongst, like, the men, you know, as to, like, you know, who's the who's the better musician or, like, you know, what, uh, you know, debating the merits of those sorts of musicians. So I grew up doing, you know, some finger-picking stuff, you know, with the sound of that Merle Travis kind of thumb-picking guitar. Uh, when I went to the University of Kentucky, I got exposed to more of, like, the living tradition of, you know, Kentucky fiddle and banjo music. Uh, one person I saw the multiple times that was uh, really inspiring to me was uh, the banjo player Lee Sexton, who just passed away not too long ago. That's right, yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, he uh, he would come to the University of Kentucky at least once a year and do a concert, and uh, I got to see him play there. I went to the town of uh, Whitesburg, which is uh, pretty much where he lived, um, and uh, coincidentally, one time when I was there, he was playing at the square dance that I went to at a place called Carcassonne. And um, I just remember at that time I had been coincidentally listening to a lot of recordings he had made at the for the Library of Congress like decades before. And then, uh, you know, just the idea of seeing him like uh, in the corner playing for the square dance and there was like a 10-year-old like kid like shredding on the fiddle like with him, like totally hanging. And uh, it, it really just awoke my brain to, oh yeah, there's something uh, definitely like very special that like lives here. And uh, that that sort of like started to awaken my interest in old time music, fiddle and banjo. It was also right around the time when I was moving to California. So it's kind of like I moved to California and then after I got here started picking up the banjo and the fiddle and doing a lot of digging into the history and uh, eventually found out that, you know, actually, yeah, there once upon a time there were fiddlers and banjo players in my hometown. Some of them made recordings, you know, commercial recordings in the 20s that I was able to find. I was able to track down, like, family members of some of those musicians. Wow. And uh, so it was this really roundabout kind of so path. It took, it took you moving yeah. to California to discover the banjo and, and the fiddle. Yeah, and, and then once I did that, then I could go home and sort of reconnect it uh, with the place in a in a different way. Yeah, um, probably look at it through a completely different lens at that point, right? Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, as it turned out, you know, my dad's best friend that, you know, I grew up hanging around all the time, you know, who I, all, I always knew as a guitar player, it turned out, well, he played a little bit of fiddle and his family was like this dynasty of you know fiddlers you know and and you know there were some we found recordings of you know some of his family members and they were just phenomenal musicians and wow. you know it was this really uh, fascinating journey and also a little bit a little bit heartbreaking because i mean like i kept like coming to my dad with all these names of musicians i would find and like historical records and he was like oh yeah i knew that person or i knew that person's family member or whatever and at one point he said, you know, if you were interested in this stuff when you were a kid, we could have just, like, taken you to all those people. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it was, it was, yeah, it's, it's, it was a things, roundabout journey. Yeah. Things happen in the way they're supposed to happen, right? So, so by contrast, you're, you're in Southern California. I probably wouldn't say uh, it's a place that's, you know, synonymous with, string music particularly uh there is you know there's a good scene here we have the california bluegrass association who do wonderful work um but they're in a bit more northern uh, part of california but i mean down here 
how does the scene compare in your eyes? I mean, are you kind of seeing it grow with, with musicians like yourself and it's still pretty new? Or is there a heritage that you found there as well that you can kind of latch on to? Uh, I've kind of always felt like I was just building up my own kind of world here, I guess. Um, the When it comes to like the West Coast as a whole, it just seems like... Uh, uh, Many of the cities further to the north tend to have like more robust um, scenes or communities for specifically old time music. You know, plenty of the uh, cities along the West Coast have, you know, an annual old time specific event. You know, there's the LA Old Time Social, there's the Berkeley um, Old Time Music Gathering, which is happening um, pretty soon. You know, there's, coming up, I think. The, yeah. There's the Portland gathering in uh, January. You know, but there there really isn't an old time festival like that in San Diego. Um, and but uh, for me personally, um, I have all. I kind of like the idea of though of like just having all of that space to kind of just build something up. You know, that it, for me, it's it's professionally, it's just sort of meant a lot of opportunity. So, I mean, at one point I remember seeing all of these old-time bands or old-time musicians that I really love doing tours of the West Coast, and I would just look at their tour itinerary and see, like, Seattle, San Francisco, you know, L.A., and then the tour stops. You know, it's like, oh, why don't... <laughs> and I was just like... That's oh. a San Diego thing, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. yeah. For, for, for old music. <laughs> and I was just so sick of... I mean, I have many friends that I love in LA and there are parts of LA that I love, but just that drive is this murder. It kills my soul. Mm-hmm. And I said, man, I want to hear these musicians, but I don't want to drive up to LA every time. So I just started my own concert series. You know, I started reaching out to the places these other musicians were normally playing on the West coast and said, Hey, look, if tell, tell people that you have coming through, if they want another gig to contact me and then we'll, I'll put something together for them. So I started a concert series called uh, the Southern Pacific sessions. Nice. And, um, you know, we've had just, we were really blessed with so many amazing, you know, old-time banjo and fiddle players. We had um, Richie Stearns and Rosie Newton come in. They were some of our first uh, nice. players. Uh, Evie Layden from San Francisco. Oh, yeah. Uh, Joseph DeCosimo and Luke Richardson. Um, and Cleek Shray. Uh, that was a really, really special concert. Um, so, you know, it's been, it's, it's, Sometimes I wish there was like, you know, there was already like an institution in place that was like putting on a big festival like that. But on the other hand, if now I could just put on those concerts and just have them come to me. <laughs> yeah. Where would you put, where would you hold the concerts? In, in For the longest time, I was doing them in Bird Rock because I had a connection yeah. with a school, a music school there called the Calabash School of Music. And it's, it's still there. But uh, Bird uh uh, for people that aren't from San Diego, that's just a neighborhood that's pretty out of the way for a lot of people. So it's tough to get an audience. Right mm-hmm. before the pandemic shutdown happened, we partnered with a local bookstore called Verbatim Books in uh, oh, North yeah. Park, which is a very central kind of center of the hip San Diego you know, universe. And they had a huge room. So uh, right before the pandemic, we had a, a square dance. I put on a square dance with my band and, Brought in a caller uh, from from the Bay Area, Robin Fisher, and uh, just had a massive turnout. It was a huge hit. 
you know, and uh, and then you know things shut down. And we couldn't do it anymore. So we're we've been like really itching to get back yeah. and do more square dances like that when we can, when it's safe. Sounds like you got a, you got a taste for for what it could be as well, right? If that first one was a success and you can pick it back up again, then yeah, 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 that's cool. And, and it yeah. just made so much more sense. This this music, uh, if you're not familiar with it, then. Uh, it's one thing to go here to the concert, but if you can go dance with it and that's your first connection with it, you know, that's, that's the way to hook people. <laughs> Definitely. Cool. It's dance music. Yeah. yeah. Keep us posted on that too. We'd like to know when those are happening. Will that's, do. uh, that's cool. Sorry, Dave. Go ahead. You were. No. Okay. okay, cool. So, I mean, just, just being from Kentucky and coming out to here then, and you say, you, you, know, you pick up the banjo, you, you pick up the fiddle. How, and then kind of delving back into your, your roots, like you said, you're talking to your dad and all these kind of musicians. How did that kind of influence kind of how you approach the genre? Like you said, you like, you, you know, maybe if you're playing older songs that you will try and put your stamp on them uh, mm-hmm. somewhat. Like how did you think your heritage played into that um, the more you found out? Yeah. Well, the, you know, there's a way that that affects me just like personally, and then that sort of has to go through another filter, I think, before it comes out in the sort of like professional presentation. I mean, I very much um, have become a, I've become very interested in like the fiddle repertoire of like the region I grew up in, the Ohio River Valley. And, you know, along those lines, I was really fortunate to, um, to meet and build a friendship with a guy named John Herod who uh, lives just a, a few minutes away in the next county over from where I grew up. But um, John is a Kentucky fiddler who for, I don't know, 30 or 40 years has just kind of traveled around the state making recordings and documenting Kentucky fiddlers for the most part. And so, you know, whenever I go home to Kentucky, I try to find time to get together with him, and then we just really talk and nerd out on this stuff. You know, and he'll try to show me some tunes. He'll he'll usually give me like five thumb drives worth of like recordings that he's you know made, and and I like to study that stuff uh, just because it's important to me personally. I think uh, from an audience perspective, I don't know if I can like put together like a totally compelling you know hour or two hour show of just that. So you know, so when I, but I do like to sort of find like a place for it. You know, recently I've been playing. Um, a fiddle tune called uh, Old Verge, which was from a black fiddler named uh, Bill Livers from from that region. Um, but uh, beyond that, I mean, when I, I... I think I have a pretty vast repertoire. I think some musicians have vast repertoires that go across genres and regions, and some... You know, some banjo players are like, I only do music from like this one county in, you know, West Virginia or something like that. And, and, uh, that's, that's not me. So. <laughs> dialed, dialed in your own thing, it sounds like, which is, yeah. which is awesome. So you, you pick up the, you know, you, you already playing guitar. You said, by the way, who was, who was in your mind? Uh, Chet Atkins or, uh, Mel Travis? Come on, give us, give us the, uh. You, you, know, saw, you saw the man haggle. What do you think? They, Dave, Dave has an opinion. You know, honestly, like that was like the old man argument. So as a kid, I was like, whatever, you know, I don't care <laughs> about that care. stuff. And well, then, did you like, use a thumb pick or did you not use a thumb pick? Is would show which way you really went. <laughs> if I'm doing a gig, it's with picks. Otherwise, no one's going to hear me. And but when I'm at home, it's bare fingers all the time. There you go. 
There you go. That tells you everything you need to know. <laughs> but um, but you you play a lot of other instruments. I want to get to kind of like how you got into the banjo specifically in just a second. But you you know you're playing uh, mandolin, guitar, piano. Mm-hmm. Um, they all play in, and then you kind of discover the the banjo thing. How did you go about doing that? Did you find a teacher in person? Did you pick up a book somewhere and kind of start from that route, or what was your kind of learning experience when it first came to to the banjo itself? With the banjo, I just uh, totally self-taught. I, uh, you know, like I said, I'd already been playing guitar for many years at that point, so you know, this half of the instrument was not so much of a mystery to me. And I wanted to start learning claw hammer. You know, as I started uh, digging into old-time music, I just, you know, of course, in Kentucky, you're, it's really easy to be overwhelmed with like bluegrass as the sound uh, of the banjo and. Yeah. Um, when I was young, I didn't connect with that sound, but when I heard the claw hammer thing, I said, wow, this is a very different type of sound, a very different type of style, and it's uh, really attractive to me. So I dug into that, and so then, you know, of course, learning how this thing works was just really weird. I think it's weird for most people that come to it, especially from another string instrument. So I'm mostly kind of self-taught, uh, you know, sort of made things a little bit harder on myself, I suppose. You know, there are many times when I'd be listening to records and thinking, like, how are they making that sound? And it would just be this mystery. And then eventually I would find, like, some YouTube video where they zoom in on the hands, like, just at the right moment. And my mind would explode. And, like, oh, my gosh, this is, like, you know, I had no idea this is this was, like, a part of banjo playing. So I sort of cobbled it together for the most part on my own. I, I really enjoy listening to, you know, again, old recordings and and trying to just match, you know, note for note what I'm hearing. Trying to figure it out, right? Trying yeah. to figure out how that, how to reproduce that sound. And that's the bit I find fascinating. I was going to ask you one of the questions that we had lined up was, was kind of being from Kentucky and with it having such a rich kind of bluegrass heritage. Did you ever dabble in that? But it sounds like you kind of instinctively knew that you wanted to go down that claw hammer route like before anything. Yeah. And, and, yeah. uh, that, that was my like introduction to it. And, you know, but from there, you know, I, 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 I think rather than identifying with any particular style, I, I mean, I just listen to lots of different music. There's so many different techniques and traditions uh, that go into this instrument. If I hear something and it moves me, I just kind of have to figure out some way to do it. And so sometimes I've heard, Clawhammer stuff that made me feel that way. Sometimes it's been two finger stuff. Sometimes it's been three finger stuff. Sometimes, yeah, it's been like bluegrassy, you know, pedal to the metal, you know, finger picks, like screaming tunes, you know, not not too often. But, yeah. but once in a while that stuff grabs me and then I have to kind of work it out, or at least my way, I guess. That's awesome. Do you want to jump into a little tune for us? Sure. I think what I'll do is um, I'll play something in like that's like a little bit more of like a close study, I guess is what I would call it. And a good example of like a pandemic project. Um, this is a tune from a banjo player uh, that probably has one of the most unique sounds and styles that I've encountered. Um, uh, a Tennessee banjo player named Omer Forster. Um, who 
just for the for the true banjo nerds out there, he played in a two finger style, but I didn't know that when I set out working on this and sort of worked it out with uh, three fingers. So I'm going to play it pretty close to how he did note wise, but my technique is nothing like his. But right. uh, in any event. Um, this is a tune by him called uh, Flowery Girls. That's just a really beautiful, really unique, and and uh, could not have learned this without several months at home with nothing else to do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Take it away. Mark Davis shared the sentiments there that that was uh, the, might be the favorite song off the new CD, and I couldn't agree more. I think that's that's one of my favorites too. That's well, thanks, that's, Dad. That's a, there we go. <laughs> Dad's there. Dad's in the yeah, in the chat. Yeah. I see. Yeah. So um, that's awesome. Thank you. That was that was beautifully played. What is um you you had a Vega Senator before, which we mm-hmm. we know and love. What, what's the banjo you're playing there? This is an instrument from Mike Ramsey. Um, and this is a recent uh, acquisition of mine. I was at my favorite San Diego music store, Moe's Guitar. Oh, yeah. Um, Down the street from me. Yeah. Exactly. And uh, they always have something interesting in their shop. Uh, it's not always a five-string banjo, but there's always something interesting with there. And I saw this instrument and picked it up and said, oh, my God, this is such a beautiful sound. I have to have this. And um, I had actually not heard of Mike Ramsey before, uh, so I bought it and then Googled his name, and he had uh, passed away just like the the day before. 
So mm-hmm. I have no, and he's a, it says on here, Pittsburgh, North Carolina. And I have no idea how this instrument uh, wound its way into a guitar shop in La Mesa, San Diego, California. But uh, here it is. <laughs> here you are, too, from, uh, from the area. Yeah. Dave. Any any uh, input thus far? I know you're, you're like I've been looking at Clint's playing style and that kind of thing. Any, um... Yeah, I love that. You know the the old time uh, three finger styled. And uh, who are some of how would you how would you kind of describe the difference between for for people the the three finger scrug style versus the three finger old time style? Yeah, that's, that's a, good, a question. good question. Um. Well, there's. If you really wanted to pick it apart, I think like uh, there's so many things that we think of as like defining the Scruggs style, like the forward roll being one thing, mm-hmm. and then of course like playing with finger picks, uh, having an instrument with a resonator, um, and like those are all things that existed and all things that people did, you know, before Earl Scruggs. It was just you know Earl Scruggs kind of crystallized everything together, uh, all those elements in in a in, in an intricate and robust way that uh, just no one else had quite done before. So, you know, when you have people that might do do an up-picking style, I think that's what a lot of old-time people will sort of call it, like an up-picking style. Whether it's two fingers or three fingers, you know, you just find that the, the, the rhythms tend to be a little bit more square, um, less syncopated, because they just don't, t- they're not so forward roll heavy you know that forward roll lends such a syncopation that defines bluegrass banjo playing so you know it's it's a lot more you know these sorts of rhythms i can't think of a tune off the top of my head to play in that style sure. but, but you can get the idea i think and and when do you when you how do you decide if a tune's going to get the t- like a two finger style versus a three f- using three fingers, yeah, sometimes that might just be a reflection of like my limitations as a performer. It's really hard to sing and do like three finger ornate stuff. So, you know, um, but it ultimately it just sort of is a a matter of interpreting the song. I don't I don't really know. There's much of a science behind it, but I. To me, part of being an old time musician is like investigating, you know, tunes. Um, which is to say, like, plenty of us, myself included, love to study, you know, specific players, specific performances really intensely and try to learn, you know, some sort of secrets. But, uh, but, you know, after you do that, I, I think it's important and, and fun to take melodies and then try playing them in other styles, try playing them on different instruments. And sometimes, you know, you stumble on something that just works in a different way. Um, so, um, I guess, well, yeah, I think I probably have another tune along those lines where I could, I guess, sort of would speak to that, that idea. Do you have a a two finger tune so we could kind of see the contrast between that and the three finger? Oh, you know what? Actually, yeah, I do. Um, this is, this is actually the first tune on the record. And, um... I'll also just say that when it comes to two finger styles, I it seems to me like there it's it's almost like a misnomer. I think that 
it seems to me like there are plenty of banjo players that played with two fingers, but I don't know that any two of them really had an identical style. You mm. encounter some people that talk like, usually it's index and thumb, and so some people talk about a player being an index lead player or a thumb lead player. And, uh, and you know, just meaning like which finger are you using the most to play the melody. And, uh, and then it just, whenever I look at a two-finger player really close, it just seems like it's, I don't know, I can't find like a through line through all of those different two-finger players. But in any event, uh, I'll play... Uh, the first track on this record is um, a common song called uh, East Virginia or Old East Virginia, but played um, in a slightly uncommon way. It comes from a banjo player named Morgan Sexton, who was the uh, uncle of uh, Lee Sexton that I mentioned uh, before. Um, Morgan Sexton played in a two-finger style, and uh, you know, uh, it, it seems that his style and the repertoire that he played was kind of viewed as so remarkable that towards the end of his life he was actually given a, a National Endowment for the Arts um, National Heritage Fellowship. You know, just sort of, you know, the 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 nation sort of recognizing like, wow, what this is something special that's been preserved here. So I, I wanted to start the record with that, I guess, just as a nod to that part of my journey, sort of this, seeing the Sexton family, I guess, was really sort of what, uh, as I said before, sort of started me on my journey. Um, so, yeah, I'll play that and I'll try to sing it. Thank you. 
Yeah, that was fantastic. Thanks. Beautiful. What cool. tuning were you using there? That was just a double C tuning. Just a standard double C. All right. So, uh, well, okay, yeah, it's a uh, here. It's a uh, starting here. It's a uh, G C G C and D there at the end. And your singing is really. Uh, it's really um, powerful. How were you always a singer, or in, and and how you definitely have that old time style of singing nailed in too? Do you practice with the banjo you're singing, or you practice with a guitar, or do I, um, just what's your approach yeah. to singing these melodies? Well, when I was young, I was pretty bashful about it, so I didn't really sing, and people were always trying to get me to sing, um, and I just wouldn't do it. And, uh, I don't know, just kind of growing up after I became a teenager, just started singing in the car and, you know, eventually started singing, uh, at shows. But, uh, when it comes to like practicing, I don't really practice it. I, and, and like, don't even really sing at home. I just, I just sing in the car and that's it, you know? <laughs> so if, if I have like an important gig coming up or something and maybe I'm like out of practice and I just have to find a long drive to go on and, you know, just kind of holler <laughs> through the traffic. <laughs> it's good. I get it because it's, it's tricky. I know for myself, like practice, I'm not naturally a singer. And so practicing singing at home, I'm like, I don't really want people to hear this at all. Yeah, <laughs> but nice. in the car, you have that freedom. Yep. Car is the best place to practice singing. You, yeah. you, it's really tricky to practice banjo while you're driving, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yep. That's that's how I learned, and that's why I didn't get much better. Sorry, I had to. I'm a dad. That's what I do. Um, a couple of questions in the chat, if you don't mind, uh, sure. just kind of while we're on the topic, you were talking a little bit uh, about technique. Um, John says Clawhammer has always been a bit of a mystery to me. Could Clinton give a demonstration of his right-hand style? So I think there's probably a, lot, you know, a few people here watching today that, that maybe aren't uh, as familiar with kind of you know, the more common style. Uh, are you able to demonstrate kind of what you're sure. doing there? Um, sure, Jonathan, if you sure. want to pull up that main screen. Kind of like uh, along the lines I was made the point earlier that uh, there are just so many different ways of playing this instrument. There almost isn't like a wrong way. And uh, even when you look at something like a uh, claw hammer, you know, you, you do find like a lot of variation in what exactly claw hammer technique means from one player to the next. Um, I myself just use uh, two surfaces or parts of my right hand to strike the strings. I use my middle fingernail and the underside of my thumb. And so the middle fingernail strikes the strings by moving down onto them. So that's why some people call this down picking. And then, you know, my thumb is plucking strings just pretty much the way it would for any other kind of a stringed instrument. If you were a guitar player or just if you were a, a bluegrass picker, your thumb is kind of doing the same thing it always does. But um, other players might use their index finger instead of the middle finger. And some other players might use both of them at the same time or else they might have a reason why in one part of a song they might use their index and then another part of the song they'll use their middle finger so again everyone is a little bit different but uh i just use these two surfaces so um and the way i teach my students um is 
to the way I think of it is you try to hold your fingers for the most part still and generate all the power from your wrist and so you're basically just bringing your fingers down to the strings and then you can strike downward through it like that when you come back up the thumb kind of snags on a string and grabs it back up In a, in a nutshell, that's, that's my uh, Call Hammer 101 intro, I think. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good primer. I like that. Um, and then Julie Colton, who is a, a regular guest here on, on Daring Live, um, she had asked, because you know, I had mentioned that you play a number of different instruments, and she's also learning uh, fiddle and guitar. Um, and she was asking, do you have a system for practicing all of your instruments? No, it's 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 just a matter of inspiration. I am almost always inspired to work on something, but uh, I'll sort of get into a zone on one instrument that could last for several months. And usually, there's some catalyst. I might go to a concert where there's a phenomenal blues pianist, and then I just watch that, and and all I want to be is is that. And so, for like months, then I'm just really wood shitting on the piano hard but then you know i'll go play at summer grass and i'll think like oh man i really need to beef up like my chops on the mandolin or something um so you know that being said if if i'm in a zone on any instrument i usually will have like a a tune that i'm working on or a specific skill that i'm working on like you know during the course of the pandemic i decided you know i'm really gonna try to drill down harder on the the round peak style, it's such an important banjo style, and it's one that I've sort of only dabbled in, but I really want to, you know, understand it deeper. And so then, you know, there could be weeks when I'm just really trying to study and uh, practice, you know, that one style. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, I just kind of go wherever I get inspired to go, I guess. I think that seems like a good uh, a good way to go. Thanks for answering those questions. I know there's uh, uh, there's going to be a few more here. Um, let's get into the album. I'm looking at the uh, the artwork right now. Let me see if I can sure. pull that up. Um, if I live and I don't get killed, mm-hmm. first of all, where did that come from? <laughs> that I, I, is, I love that. I think that's a great title for an album. Thank you, thank you. I um, I've always been a fan of like long album titles or long song titles. I guess so. But the, the, that is a lyric from uh, the final track on the album, which is called All Night Long. And that's kind of a, in its more traditional form, it's a bluesier uh, kind of a fiddle tune and uh, just one of my favorites. And um, the, the, the lyric in there is, If I live and I don't get killed, I'm going to make my home in Louisville. Or, or in the song, they say Louisville, too to make it uh, rhyme better <laughs> but uh but you know i was uh working the whole catalyst for this whole record was the pandemic shut down and uh, just saying to myself okay i've got nothing but time not having not gonna have any gigs for a while so i should make a record and i started making it and uh you know just especially for the first uh parts of the for several months of that pandemic, you know, it was pretty scary at times. People didn't really know what was going on, didn't really know how deadly it was or how you catch it or, you know, what's, what are we really in store for or for how long? And so um, 
And then, of course, there were all of these, uh, you know, Black Lives Matters protests. So just f in so many different ways, just the idea of death was kind of in the air. And, um, and I remember in the middle, I started, so that lyric, for that reason, I think, kind of just latched onto my mind, saying, like, this feels like a, a lyric or a line that really resonates with this moment, because everyone's just kind of sitting at home and sort of waiting for this all to be over with and thinking, like, what am I going to do with myself, like, after the pandemic's over, you know? Like, you know, you, you have, like, a lot of people, I, I know so many people right now that are, like, quitting their jobs or changing their careers or, you know, moving. Mm -hmm. You know, they've taken this time and said, you know, well, you know, if... You know, if if we make it through this, you know, well, how do I want my life to look after this? So, it, it, yeah. and so that that sort of was thought was tumbling in my head, and then what really sealed the deal was I went on my first backpacking trip <laughs> into the California wilderness, and through a series of uh, really uh, dumb mistakes, I wondered for a second, like, am I going to die? <laughs> <laughs> where Where did you go? Uh, I was in um, the Sequoias, Sequoia National oh, Forest. Yeah. I was just up there a couple of weeks ago. So yeah, yeah. It's bear it's, country. Yeah. yeah. But after yeah. that experience, I said, okay, that has to be, this is the universe telling me, like, this has to be you know, <laughs> the, the record title. So that's, that's awesome. That, yeah. I love it. I, and it's very profound and very uh, appropriate for the, for the kind of last 18 months, two years that we've been kind of rolling through. Oh, it's so weird to say that. It's almost been two years. Yeah. It doesn't feel like it, but it is. But uh, yeah, that's it's awesome. What, what about the recording process? Are, are you? I, I picked up on a couple of female voices in there. I thought in the background. Uh -huh. um, yep. But but tell us about kind of how that went down, uh, as far as like the instrumentation uh, and who was involved. And mm -hmm. I imagine you were on a lot of it. Yeah. So um, every instrument on that record is played by me, and uh, there are two tracks: um, "Curly Headed Woman" and "All Night Long." which feature guest vocals from uh, Aaron Bauer, who's a musician here in San Diego, and um, always loved her voice and thought these tunes could use some female harmony parts. So, so uh, yeah, she's the only other person on this record. Um, when I started this, working on this record, like uh, right after the shutdown orders were issued in san diego and again that was the early stages people didn't really know what was safe and what wasn't so uh you know eventually people discovered that like you can actually still work in a recording studio and it's it's pretty safe but uh, at the beginning that wasn't really known so i just thought well i should make a record i should just do it at home i've done a lot of work uh, as an audio engineer in the past and have like a reasonable but modest you know recording setup so i just did it at home actually in the room i'm live streaming from right now awesome. um and you know like uh well yeah so it just uh everything was at home this was this was in so many ways like uh shaped by the pandemic the ultimate pandemic recording yeah so I, I joked you know but like making an album is like the ultimate form of social distancing you know you just <laughs> you just you just go in a hole you know for for however long it takes it took me i think i worked on this was sculpting the record revising it you know swapping out repertoire for probably 14 months 14 oh, wow. or 15 months you know and that's uh you know the the 
the the great benefit uh, doing it all yourself is that you can take as much time as you want to and like really you know sculpt things and then of course that's also the 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 downside of it is you can just go nuts you know go a little crazy yeah. yeah which was being a, being in a studio trying to mix an album is 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 enough to make you go still crazy as it is like during a pandemic i'm sure yeah, is, yeah. is a different different beasts if you go in the studio and it's like on someone else's time, you know, eventually the money runs out and that, you know, whether you're ready for it or not, you know, that's when the record's finished. Right. But, uh, yeah. Were there any challenges during that recording that you just you couldn't work out, couldn't get through or, um, was everything fairly like, as you, it sounds like it was very well laid plan. Um, yeah. Uh, just like, uh, yeah. uh, the only challenges were just sort of like typical studio challenges of like, you know, sorting through, does does this interpretation, does this performance really work? Is it good enough? Can I play it better? You know, yeah. um, that, uh, those sort of things. But um, that and I guess just like making sure that, uh, you know, the neighbor's dog isn't barking or something, you know, on <laughs> 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 my favorite take or whatever. But, uh, but yeah. That's, that's character, right? Yep. <laughs> yep. The uh, and this is correct me if I'm wrong. This is your first release with uh, Tiki Parlor Recordings, or it, yeah, am I wrong? It, no. it is. I have um, released a lot of other stuff on my own, but uh, just doing everything in a really intense DIY way. I was in a a band uh, for many years before called the G Burns Jug Band that sort of tilted more towards a uh, bluesy ragtime early jazz stuff but still like string band based and we you know self-produced our own records we and you know we just took it even further you know we screen printed all of our albums you know ourselves so you know we we would buy like the 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 cardboard like uh, uh templates for you know a foldable cd and you know we would assemble everything we'd screen print it and you know we just did everything ourselves yeah which was fun for a time, but when it came time to like make this record, as I was had all this time, I just thought, you know, I'm, I want, uh, I'm looking for better returns uh, for less work. So I'm gonna <laughs> see if I can get some help with this for the first time. So I reached out to um, a guy named David Bragger in yep. L.A., who's a really hugely important uh, uh, asset to the. Uh, old time and folk music community, uh, definitely on the West Coast, but uh, you know he's pretty well known all over, I think. Yeah. But uh, he runs Tiki Parlor R Recordings. We've worked together in the past in different capacities, but uh, you know just sort of reached out to him and said I'm trying to work on this record, and he said he'd be happy to put it out. And um, it's just been a wonderful, wonderful experience the whole way through. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, and they haven't been going too long, huh? They've been. I don't Maybe a know decade how or so. long. Uh, well, okay, yeah. It sounds yeah, like I mean, I mean in, in the well, <laughs> yeah, I guess since, since 2012, I think um, is is when they started, I believe. But they're kind of they're making a a name for themselves, like you say, as the uh, the West Coast kind of old time music uh, focus, if you will. But, um, yeah, and you know they they in terms of like the records they do put out, it's definitely not limited to West Coast musicians at all. Mm -hmm. You know they. In the last year or two, they put out, uh, you know, a record from Kirk Sutphin, who's, you know, like one of those, like, Truvine, you know, mm -hmm. musicians from the Round Peak area. You know, someone who grew up there and learned from, like, those 
people, you know, and is and really is like at the torchbearer for a living tradition, but you know, on the East Coast. Yeah. So it's just a really phenomenal label. It's 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 got a great mix of of you know legends, and then people like me that you've never heard of before as well. <laughs> That's awesome. That's kind of the point, right? We, you yeah. Know, every, everybody started from somewhere, so they have this album now. Yeah. Um, I know, Dave, you want to ask a couple of questions about one of the songs in particular, uh, Curly-Headed Woman. Yeah, I was curious about the history of that because it's, it's essentially hesitation blues. Right, yeah. Which is, but uh, with a little bit of different a lyric. Um, do you know the history of this tune at all? Uh, well, nothing like very like concrete or specific. So specific as like this person made it from here, yeah. you know. But I sometimes I think of it as like the quintessential American song, uh, just because it has popped up not only just in so many different performers like repertoire, you know, like Charlie Poole like played it. I think that's where a lot of people in the banjo world probably know it from. But uh, you know, blues and jazz musicians played this. There's a phenomenal recording of Jelly Roll Morton, you know, the self-proclaimed inventor of jazz, you know, piano player from New Orleans, you know, playing this for the Library of Congress, you know, not entirely the same lyrics, but most of them, it's definitely the same song, you know, so it's it's just a melody that has um, resonated, again, with just about everyone, just about everywhere, seemingly forever. Uh, this specific version, Curly-Headed Woman, comes from one of my personal favorite uh, old-time ensembles, a duo from um southern part of Kentucky, I think a town called Monticello, uh, but the duo called Burnett and Rutherford, uh, uh, Dick Burnett and uh, Leonard Rutherford, a banjo and fiddle. And uh, they were also the source of where I started with All Night Long from as well, but... Uh, in any event, uh, yeah, they they have their own unique version of it that's banjo and fiddle heavy, and and some unique lyrics. I've never really encountered the lyrics about a curly headed woman in any other version of the tune. So, you know, it's possible that maybe that was like a kind of autobiographical contribution of you know one of those one of those guys, you know, or else maybe it was just like a lyrical couplet that was just you know, a part of their oral tradition, you know. So words and lyrics are just as much a part of like an malleable oral tradition as like the the the, the notes and the and the the instrumentation itself. So yeah, if you really want to hear a beautiful sort of source version of it, you would you would just want to look up uh, Burnett and Rutherford. Burnett and Rutherford. Nice. All right. Will do, will do. Um, and you have a video debuting on that particular song, right? Do you want to tell yeah. us about that? Yeah, so um, I wanted to make a music video for one of the tunes, and uh, that was just always a personal favorite of mine. That's one of the few tunes on the album that's uh, multi-tracked. Most of the record is solo, live performances, but... Um, in working on this one, I sort of uh, filled it out a little bit more with uh, a couple of guitars, banjo, fiddle, and then these uh, duet harmonies. And uh, 
it was just one of these uh, moments in the recording process where a kind of alchemy happened. You know, I, I must have placed the mics like just right because it has like a really, really happy with how the fiddle sound came out on that record and the banjo as well. And the performance is just really, really gelled. So uh, we shot a, a video for that with um, a really great uh, filmmaker here in San Diego that I've worked with uh, several times now. His name's Omar Lopex. And he has a production company called Standard Fantastic. But uh, Omar only shoots on film. And, oh, wow. uh, and I just love the way his films look for that reason. And said, you know, I want to shoot something that has kind of like an old home movie feel. You know, I was kind of thinking of old you know, silent home movies that my dad has shown me of, of him when he was a baby, you know, and, and just the, the, the sort of granular quality of the film, the, col- the way the colors look in old films. So we shot it on Super 8. We shot a, we got a Super 8 camera. We could only afford like six minutes of film. <laughs> and the song is three minutes long. So, you know, we had to do, we had a really tight photo shoot. We found a beautiful canyon in the middle of San Diego in, um, I forget now, April or May, but it's like the one part of the year in San Diego where um, the weather is tempered enough and we've had enough rain recently that there's a lot of wildflowers. So we found a canyon that was just completely blanketed with with nasturtiums and uh, uh, lots of other flowers I don't know the names of. So it's a very, very beautiful video. I can't wait to premiere it, but it'll be premiered on the bluegrass situation on on uh, September 22nd. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, we don't get those wildflowers too often, well, too, for too long every year anyway. They tend to just get they washed out of, by the sun come yeah, July, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we, we got in there at just the right time. Yeah. Awesome. So May, uh, sorry, September 23rd, you said? Uh, 22nd. 22nd, bluegrass situation. Excellent stuff. That's really yeah. cool. Dave? There's some questions in, in the other chat that I'd like to yeah. get to. Um, sure. Uh, one is one question is uh, from Sammy Knight is saying, since he studied classical piano um, at University of Kentucky, do you ever play classical music on the banjo? Yeah, not uh, not a ton. There is a and the stuff that I have looked at or picked up has just kind of um, been stuff I've heard other people in Southern California play. Um. There's there's one uh, really only one true class, classic banjo tune I've ever played, and it's called the Climbing Rose, and I think that it's one a lot of folks play. I've heard um, up in L.A. There's the banjo player uh, Frank Fairfield, who I've seen play this a few times, and uh, I've seen uh, I don't know Jerron Paxton play this a few times. Um, Clark Buehling I think plays it, but. Uh, Anybody that I know that has like really invested a lot of time in classic banjo seems to play that tune, and uh, I that that's about as much as I've dabbled into it. Reading standard notation on a on a banjo is just a pain in the butt. That uh, yeah, so I don't I haven't gotten too deep into it. Yeah, do you do? You, why do you think reading standard notation is so much harder? What's some of the reasonings? Versus, uh, do you ever read standard notation on guitar, or do you mainly just read it for piano? 
Uh, I can, but it's just like more work to kind of figure it out. And it's it just, I, I, I suppose the central problem is just that, you know, if you, uh, there are multiple points at which you can play the same note on a stringed instrument. And sometimes uh, you might have to like look at a, a collection of notes at a time to really, f before you figure out that, oh, I should actually, I shouldn't be playing the note here, I should be playing it up here. And it's, I guess I just uh, am not quite adept enough. I'm sure if I invested a lot of time in it, I could probably, it would become more intuitive, but it's it's a whole lot of extra work to me. I can sit down and sight-read something for piano pretty well, but again, it's, that note can only be played, you know, here. So. Right, right. Um, another question over in this other chat is um, by Chino saying, do you think there may be some Spanish music, Mexi Mexico? that can be adapted on the banjo. I've always wanted to mix genres between Mexican ranch style music and American Western. That's a good question. When it comes to the, I mean, what, what, just when it comes to like, historically speaking, I'm not aware of any much crossover. And if you were looking for some way, some in to connect the banjo to other styles of Mexican music. Off the top of my head, it seems like the tenor banjo would be like a really natural fit just because, I mean, in San Diego, I, I'm no expert on any like Hispanic or Mexican styles, but I do hear Norteño music blasting out of cars like all the time and coming, you know, just, it's in the air everywhere here. So, you know, I've, I've definitely heard, you know, the Norteño like Bajo Sexto, you know, polka kind of beat. And that seems to overlap, musically speaking, like pretty cleanly with like the way a tenor banjo might get used in like, you know, trad New Orleans jazz. So uh, that would be, I guess, my suggestion for if you're looking for some way to bring this family of instrument into, you know, that those traditions of music. Um, the question I have, since you mentioned traditional jazz, and I know you play, you know, on your album, you're playing Jelly Roll Morton tunes mm -hmm. on the piano most. And uh, do you ever do that, any of that on the banjo or do you, or um, more of a traditional jazz um, approach? Yeah, I've not, not made that leap yet. No, I don't think so. Sometimes I, I do have a tenor banjo and sometimes pick it up and try to work it out, but uh, it's, uh, the the transposition thing because it's tuned kind of like a fiddle or a mandolin but lower and that just messes with my head so much and so I'll just, I usually just put it down after five minutes because I've got a headache. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I think that's a new album coming on, isn't it? That's got to be this the next round. Banjo headache. <laughs> well, we're gonna go there, but yeah, maybe. <laughs> no. Um, sorry, Dave, to interrupt. No, no. Yeah. I, I wanted to touch on real quick. There was a comment earlier on as well that I know is, is important to you, but it was from uh, you know our friends down at the Center for World Music here in town. Uh, Clint has been teaching Clawhammer banjo to middle school students in San Diego for several years with the support of Deering Banjo Company, which is true, um, as part of our World Music in the Schools program. Tell us a little bit about that before you go, because I think that's that's kind of one part, you know, talk about the album and, and kind of your journey so far, but I know that's yeah. kind of something you, you feel very passionate about. Um, yeah, 
Well, I, I do a lot of teaching. That is like my, you know, that is my, uh, the, the big part of my profession is, and teaching banjo specifically. I teach all the instruments that I play, but I have far more banjo students than anything else. And uh, this, this Banjos in the Classroom program was just a really beautiful meeting of so many different people and organizations kind of working together. The Center for World Music has been working in Southern California for a long time, uh, decades. I forget how many decades, but many decades. And uh, have been basically working to um, educate and make accessible world, tr musical traditions from around the world. You know, in in the city of San Diego, but in particular in San Diego schools. So they ha they uh, they find and hire artist teachers. You know, musicians that they feel represent or do represent. You know, uh, music traditions from all over the world. So they have you know artist teachers. Uh, from from Africa, from across, from the Middle East, from different places in Europe, they have so that 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 will just go partner with a school and go there for a weekly class where they're not just talking about the music, but they're teaching the kids like uh, how to play an instrument or how to uh, uh, perform some part of that music tradition. So you have some people going out and teaching like. You know, like um, Zimbabwean, like uh, umbira music, those thumb pianos, or you have some people teaching uh, Indonesian gamelan. It's like a percussion orchestra form from from Indonesia, and uh, they, for the longest time, didn't have someone representing an American music tradition. And they said, you know, well, America is as much a part of the world as anything else, so we need somebody to sort of teach something that is uh, distinctly American. So um, I connected with uh, that organization, and they said we'd really love to find a way to um, create a banjo program. And at that time, I had uh, already been pretty well acquainted with Jamie Deering. For a time, uh, we were, seemed like we were always showing up at the same gigs. And we sort of connected that way, and she saw me playing banjo, and so we formed a friendship through that. And, uh, you know, it was just a matter of me trying to help connect, like, the Deering Banjo Company with the Center for World Music, and then also uh, got connected with the San Diego Music Foundation, which does a lot of uh, uh, public school music education outreach already, but mostly around guitars. But we said, hey, let's, let's, all of those people formed this, like, coalition, and we, we, we were able to assemble, you know, a, a big pile of, like, 30 good time American, or good time banjos that, uh, you know, we were able to put in the hands of uh, middle school students uh, across San Diego, and so for, for a couple of years now, uh, you know, when it, or, not the last year, obviously, but for a couple of years, then I was going to different schools once a week, and we would just have a group call hammer class where, you know, we would learn the, the technique. I would try to teach them a little bit about the history of, you know, where this instrument comes from and, you know, how the call hammer style itself, you know, this technique is really connected to the West Coast of Africa. 
that's how people play, you know, a lot of their stringed instruments there with the with almost an identical right hand style. And um, just like one of the most like uh, rewarding, you know, artistic experiences for me, being able to sort of bring that experience to so many people, you know, at once. So it was, it was, we couldn't have done that without, you know, the help of the Deering Banjo Company. So thank you guys for that. Well, we're privileged to be involved in it. Uh, was that been? Uh, no, it wasn't where I was looking. Was with you know for the compliments at all? But it was <laughs> it was more to highlight what you've been doing with uh, the Center for World Music and, and in the schools. I, I had the pleasure of attending one or two of those uh, sessions, and there you can see it on the kids' faces like they're just enthralled in it. It's great. Yeah, it's, it's such an cool. amazing it's such an amazing program. I mean, like if you've never heard of. Um, Indonesian gamelan music that's G-A-M-E-L-A-N just just Google that it'll make your head explode and then just imagine like how fortunate like a kid must be to be able to go to school and like learn how to do that you know with their classmates well that it even exists that, that's yeah. right there is, is the key yeah absolutely yeah. Um, we're, we're, where are we now hour 15 uh, I would love to have you, have you play, uh, play a song on the way out here but before you do let's talk about real quick Probably more importantly, where can people get the album? They can, whoop, excuse me, they can get it through the Tiki Parlor website, uh, Old Time Tiki Parlor, or they can get it through my website, uh, ClintonRossDavis.com. Can you do the Bandcamp one as well? Because I've got that URL I can throw up there. Yeah, yeah. So that's that one. That's linked. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. Okay. So ClintonRossDavis. Bandcamp.com, and you're a teacher. Are you taking students right now, or are you kind of booked up? Okay, I am pretty much always taking students. If you go to the same website, yeah, yeah. If you go to my personal website, it's uh, well, yeah, just uh, I have two websites with very similar URLs, and it's really confusing, and I can't sort it out. But if you find your way to uh, any of my websites, try ClintonRossDavis.com, and you'll you'll be able to connect there. Quick enough. You do online as well, or just in person? I'm yeah. assuming you're online now, because yeah, yeah. Online, I've uh, it's been one of the one of the great for me at least developments of the last year was uh, I didn't do online lessons before then, but uh, did so as a necessity. But yeah, now that I've been online, I've been able to get students from all over the country, and it's just been super fun to connect with people everywhere now. You've certainly got a lot of people watching from around the country today, from uh, Illinois to uh, North Carolina, um, and some international as well, which is great. Um, definitely people paying attention. So, Clinton Davis, it's been a pleasure. David Bandrowski, any final thoughts, words of wisdom? No, this has been a pleasure listening to you play, and, and uh, thanks for being on the show. Yeah. Thanks for having me. For what are you going to play us out with? a fiddle melody called the Charleston number one it comes from originally it was just a fiddle melody from a duo out of Mississippi called Narmer and Smith and this is one of these tunes where I really monkeyed with it and found a really nice way to play this in a melodic style melodic three finger style that is or at least taking that approach 
So, um, did you change your tuning there quite drastically, or is that where I'm you? I'm still at? basically in an open G tuning, but I've capoed up into the key of C, which is where this fiddle melody is usually played. Um, and uh, long story short, just the melody kind of flows out of this tuning uh, better than any other tuning. So, um, so yeah, hence the convoluted setup for it. <laughs> Quick question before, on the tuning too. Did you capo up your fifth string to C or did you keep it at G? Yeah. Brought it up to G, you know. Up part of C. the part of the melodic style, you know, is learning how to play a melody where you try not to play uh, consecutive notes on the same string. And so for that reason like having the tuning in a particular way is really going to affect how easily you can flow that way through the tune so yeah having this one capoed up is kind of essential for making the melody sound the way it should so this is charleston uh charleston number one all right thank you everybody for joining us we'll see you very soon take it away mr clint <laughs>